All right, so uh, Hebrews uh, 1, 4 to 16 is the first thing that we have on our study guide. Uh, do you all have, everybody's got a study guide with a pen? Okay. Uh, before we get started, I just want to commend uh, one book to you uh, as it relates to these warning passages in Hebrews 5 and 6, as well as a number of other warning passages throughout the Old and New Testaments. Uh, but there's this book called The Race Set Before Us uh, by Tom Schreiner and R. Dell Cannaday. Uh, Tom Schreiner's a New Testament professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. R. Dell Cannaday is a visiting professor at Southern, but he teaches... I believe in uh, maybe Toronto. Uh, no, actually, he's now at St. Paul, Minnesota. So shout out to the McFarlands. Um, <clears throat> he's also New Testament and biblical theology. Both of them are New Testament biblical theology. So the race set before us. This is a, a great resource for understanding the warning passages, uh, of which we will uh, move through quickly. Uh, can anybody give me a very, very... Very, very concise review of Hebrews 1 to 4, verse 16. We should strive to live in the comfort of Christ. Strive to live in the comfort of Christ. You want to say anything else or you can pass the microphone around as people want to say Okay. Live in the comfort of Christ. Okay. Anybody else? I think that actually may be on. If you don't mind turning it off while we're. Anybody else? We've been doing this for four or five weeks, and none of you can concisely summarize it. My efforts as a teacher have miserably failed, so I'll stare at you as long as I have to, to summarize. <laughs> Hebrews 1 to 4, who can summarize it? And it's not Timothy, because Timothy summarizes it with excellence every week, so we're going to give him a break. Who can, who can summarize it? I'll give you five, six sentences. I know, I'm like, all right, well, maybe we'll just start over. Tonight, we'll be going through Hebrews 1 again. <laughs> Present, that's right. <laughs> uh, it'd be preferable for the people who listen to it online. Elise, you're more than welcome to say it, if you'd like. I can repeat what you say into my mic. Okay.
Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That's a lot of, lot of it. Yeah, and Christ can identify with us. Yes. Yes. And he was tempted. So why is that? Why is it good that he can identify with us and he was tempted? In what particular way? So that he can serve as what? Not. Don't answer, Gary. He needs to be like us in every way. He needs to identify with us in every way. And he needs to be tempted as we are and yet without sin so that he can serve as what for us? Well, he's, he is a king. Yes, okay, that's, that's, uh, that's Hebrews 1. He is the Davidic king. But thinking about Hebrews chapter 2... And then at the very end of Hebrews chapter 4, why don't anyone else answer other than Gary? This is Gary working itself out. I see some of you like, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to hear it from you. I gave you a chance earlier, and you didn't say anything, so shut. All right, Gary. So Jesus can serve as a faithful what? Well, he is our great high priest. That's right. Okay, so what does a priest do? What does a high priest do? A high priest acts as a uh, link between God and man. That's right. That's right. Serves as a, an, a mediator between God and man. Represents people. Uh, and he can't represent people if, he, if that high priest is not himself a man. Yep. Uh, so what does the high priest do uh, specifically in that, in that mediation? What does he offer? On behalf of the people to God. Okay, but how? What does he do in the temple? What does he do in the Holy of Holies? Oh, your sin alarm. I heard your sin alarm. See, you're sinning even as you're trying to formulate this. Don't cheat, Gary. What does he offer in the temple? He puts his hand on what? To identify with it, the sins of the people upon what? The, I want to say covenant, but it's not covenant. He represents the covenant people, but what does he kill? He, well, he killed the sacrificial system. He didn't kill the sacrificial system, but he killed the sacrificial... Lamb, goat, whatever the sacrifice was. Why? What did that do? Obviously, God commanded it. But why did God command that? Uh, Well, the act of sacrifice is actually a work. And Christ came to eliminate salvation through works. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. <laughs> do you you want to phone a friend? You want to phone? Do you want to, You want to phone a pastor? <laughs> you can phone a pastor. I'll I'll help you. I'll help you if you like. Okay. So, so a high priest would work in the temple, representing the people before God, and he would offer sacrifices according to God's commands. 
in the Old Covenant. Um, depending on the kind of sacrifice, it could be a bull, a goat, a lamb, a bird, whatever. Uh, but generally, those sacrifices were sacrifices for sin. And in the Old Testament, the Lord said to the people of Israel, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So where there is sin, there is death. And unless something is going to die for you, as in, yeah, Christ, Christ ultimately, but in the Levitical sacrificial system, it was an animal that died on your behalf so that you wouldn't die for your sins because that's what your sins deserved, your death, right? God killing you and you dying in your sins. And so priests would offer the blood of an innocent animal and that would cover, that blood would cover the sins of the people in the same way that the Passover lamb when it was smeared upon the doorpost God would pass over that house seeing the blood that had been shed and go to a house that didn't have that blood and kill the firstborn son you remember that? unbelievable from my senior saints my senior saints betraying me with their high-tech devices. Okay, all right. So a priest would represent the people of God, and he would offer sacrifices in order that they might be forgiven, right? And so in Hebrews 2 and then Hebrews 4, what the author of Hebrews is saying, as Elise was saying, the Son is greater in every way in terms of revelation, he is God Himself. He is the radiance of God. He's the Creator. He is the true Davidic King. He's made purification for sins, and He sat down at the right hand of God. He's better than angels who mediated the Old Covenant uh, between God and, and Moses and the people. And then He goes in to say, Christ is the Son over the house, whereas Moses was the servant. Christ is faithful as a Son, and He's the one who brings true rest, the rest that Israel did not enjoy even though Moses and Joshua were faithful in leading them. And the reason that God's people enjoy His rest in Christ is be, because our, our Christ is a faithful high priest in every way. Not because He's like the Levites. In many ways He is, but the Levites serve to point forward in many ways. But Christ is the true high priest serving similarly as the Levites did, but in a better way because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We remember that? Yes. And we were talking about Melchizedek and all of that. Okay, so Hebrews 1-4, to Jesus is better than everything else before. before. Um, <clears throat> and so, as we look again, we had already touched on Hebrews 5, 1-10, to but I just want to review it really quickly. Um, when we look at Hebrews 5, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 10, we see that the purpose of that, little, of that little block is that Christ is our great high priest. Um, and in particular, verses 9 and 10 are extremely important in his argument that he's going to continue to unfold all the way through Hebrews chapter 10. And so I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. 
because it's the main point he's trying to hammer away and that he's going to pick up again in 7, 8, 9, and 10. The purpose is that Christ is our great high priest. Yep. And, and this is where you get that, primarily. And being made perfect, he, namely Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so when you look at Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, you see two really, really important functions uh, and truths that are tied to the priesthood that Jesus meets. Uh, one is that you've that one that you've already mentioned, Gary, in verses one, five, one to three, you see that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And so in verses 1 to 3, we see that the high priest identifies with the people. So that's one important function uh, of the priesthood. Uh, that's, a, that's an important qualifier. He must be able to identify with the people which is why we understand in, now in chapter 2 uh, when he said uh, Christ has shared in flesh and blood in order that he might offer uh, up himself as a propitiation for sins, verses, or chapter 2, 14 to 18. The reason why uh, Jesus shares in flesh and blood is so that he can identify with the people as a faithful high priest. That's necessary. Uh, another important reality tied to the priesthood that we see in verse 1 and then again in verse 4 is that high priests are appointed by God. They don't appoint themselves. So for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Well, who appoints them? Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. Okay, so the Levites didn't make themselves the priests in the Old Covenant. God declared that they would be priests uh, for the Old Covenant people of Israel. And so, as we understand Jesus' priesthood, we recognize that like the Levites, Jesus did not exalt himself to become a priest. Rather, he was appointed as a priest by the God who said, You are my son, today I begotten you. Psalm 2. And then he also says in another place, this is in Hebrews 5, 6. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a high, is a high priest because God said, You are my son. Today I've begotten you, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the Lord appointed Christ to be the high priest, and the author of Hebrews is saying he did that when Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 were, were written. Does that make sense? He is declaring that this king who would come, the son of David, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So Jesus didn't come saying, I'm going to be a priest because I want to be a priest. No, hundreds of years before Christ came, the Father said, you are my son, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus shares in a true and full humanity so that he can identify with the people, but he is appointed by God, not seeking to exalt himself, but he's exalted by the Father as a high priest, and we see that he is made perfect. Remember, being made perfect is not that he's made perfect morally, like he becomes more perfect or something. He becomes perfect as a high priest through his suffering. We remember that? Being made perfect is, is tied to his vocation as a priest. I need to see like nodding of heads to under, make sure that we're understanding. Because y'all had a real difficulty telling me Hebrews 1 to 4. So y'all have to nod at everything to make sure that I'm, we're following. Okay, all right. But not like Julie, because Julie was just nodding to say, yeah, I hear you saying something, but I'm not understanding it last week. No, you're tied to her, one flesh union. Uh, so you're, you're, her identif- you're her mediator right now, representative. Uh, but that's not on you, Rob. Uh, so in Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, we see that Christ is our great high priest, and the two important things that author of Hebrews is is emphasizing is that Christ can identify with his people, the Son can identify with his people because he shares in flesh and blood, he has a true humanity, and uh, God appointed Jesus as a high priest, and we see that in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, God declared that the Son, uh, Jesus, would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And so we see that Jesus was made perfect in his suffering as a high priest. And that's the main emphasis of of chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And he's going to come back to that in just a minute. But he seems to interrupt his teaching when we get to uh, Hebrews 5, verse 11. And that continues all the way to... Chapter 6, verse 20. He's been talking about Jesus and Melchizedek, but then all of a sudden he turns, the author of Hebrews turns to his audience in this sermon and says, we've got to address some things. And so he's going to, as we look at Hebrews 5, 11 to uh, chapter 6, verse 12, the purpose that we have there is that he is going to exhort and encourage and warn the saints to endure in the faith. Uh, He's going to exhort and encourage and warn the saints to endure in the faith, or to endure in the Christian faith. And so let's, let's slow down and read uh, this section. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Uh, beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say. What does he have much to say about? He has much to say about Jesus being the priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain... Since you have become dull of hearing or sluggish of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, we'll, we'll stop there so we can deal with this particular section first. Okay, what's, uh, you can't see, it's unfortunate, you can't see it in Hebrews 5.11 unless you understand that since you have become dull, that same word that's translated dull here is actually also sluggish. So if we translate it, since you have become sluggish of hearing, in verse 11, and then we turn to 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, what is that called? It starts with an I. You just had it in your head. Inclusio, there it is. So sluggish in verse 11 and 5, and then sluggish in verse 12 and chapter 6, help us to understand that he's making a point here, and this kind of, these bookends serve uh, as, a, as a way of helping us to understand this, this uh, 5.11 to 6.12 is a little unit that he wants us, a one little unit, uh, to understand uh, what he's talking about as it relates to sluggishness, okay? He says, you become sluggish, and then at the very end he says, so that you might not become sluggish. Okay, well, how have they become sluggish, and how are they not to become sluggish? Well, all of those answers are in between. Does that make sense? All right, so if we, if we read those as bookends, then we understand that uh, this particular section is going to help us to understand how you ought not to become dull or sluggish in hearing, and how you are to, uh, or we, should, we might be able to receive the warning that he gives about being sluggish, and then at the very end, help us to understand how we are not to be sluggish. So, he wants to say a lot. I mean, he, he's already said a lot, right? <laughs> he's, he said a whole lot, all right? This is a typical pastor. He wants to say a lot. But why can't he say a lot? They can't handle the truth. 
They can't handle the truth. <laughs> Pop culture reference, you get a, you get a point for that. Uh, John wouldn't get it, though. A Few Good Men, John. A Few Good Men is a movie in the 90s. Yeah, Tom Cruise. Yeah, well, yeah, but, but at least you know it, right? Uh, fake it till you make it. Um, he wants to say a lot, but he can't. Why? Because the Hebrews have become, the Hebrew Christians, his audience have become spiritually immature. They, so what, hey, what they have, what's happened is he's saying, by this time, you should be teachers. So it's clear that these Hebrew Christians, and likely in Rome, have been Christians for a really long time. They should know the truths of the gospel, the truths about Christ and His high priesthood. They should understand the basic tenets uh, tenets of the faith so well that they can turn around and teach other people. It's not to say that you should all be pastors or elders. He's not talking about that. He's saying that you should know these things well enough to be able to turn to the the person who doesn't know Christ or the baby in Christ next to you and teach them the things that I'm now having to teach you even though you've been been a Christian for a really long time. Uh, So I don't think that they're actually babies in the faith. I think they're being tempted to turn back to being babies because in the midst of their suffering, they're forgetting all of the basic truths about Scripture and the Gospel. Okay? And one of the basic things is Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. You shouldn't even think about going back to that. That's really basic Christianity 101. If Jesus is the fulfillment of it, that means that not only does it terminate on Him, but he's better than it because he replaces it. And so he's using, I mean, a, a strong rebuke. He's using some serious, uh, what one, many commentators actually say would, would be bitter irony, a uh, little bit of sarcasm uh, to say you should be further along. But you're being immature. And this, this sluggishness this sluggishness, this laziness, this negligence, this dullness in hearing uh, is willful. The kind of slothful sluggishness that he's referring to is, is a culpable negligence. Or put another way, it's a reluctance to listen to the truth. They know the truth, but they don't want to really listen to it. And, and I'll tell you, like, the reality is this, is as, as we look at this and we say, man, like, poor Hebrew Christians, right? Like, they're, they're acting like babies. Um, but, I, but just as a pastor, for the handful of years that I've been a pastor at these couple of different churches, uh, it's amazing in, in pretty much every level of, of church discipline how often Christians, and I'm, I'm, including, I'm including myself here, uh, can be really, really spiritually immature. 
and how quickly we can forget the things that we profess and have believed for years and have to be retaught the basic truths of the faith. And so, I mean, in every, in every particular issue of church discipline, both at Emmanuel that I've been involved in and here at Holy City, uh, it's not discipline over, over complicated stuff. It's discipline over, you, ha- you have to regularly gather with the saints as, as a part of the body. No member can say to another, I have no need of you. If been, you've been united to Christ, you've been united to His people. You can't meaningfully obey the New, New Testament if you're not a part of a local church. Or you can't, you can't sleep around. You can't. You can't commit adultery. You can't commit fornication. You can't pursue same-sex desires. That's clearly outlawed in Scripture through explicit commands. But as Timothy said last week, I think rightly, the whole pattern of marriage and sexual fidelity is ultimately meant to point to Christ and His relationship to the church. And so when we're unfaithful in marriage... When we commit sexual immorality, we're saying something about Christ and the church. And that's why it's so terrible. And it's also because we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we can't unite that which is holy with that which is unholy. So in, in, in church discipline, uh, as, as often as it is very, very, very painful, you can have pastors who aren't doing the basic basic uh, patterns of obedience. Pastors who aren't believing the simple truths of the gospel and living in light of it. And so, as we look at Hebrews 5 and 6, like I don't want us to think, I don't want us to be so far removed from it to think that this isn't, this isn't a real warning for each of us. I don't know, some of you would say that you've been Christians for decades. And the author of Hebrews would say, uh, oftentimes in the midst of our sin, at the time that you should be a teacher, like you're having to relearn the basics. It shouldn't be this way. And so this, this is a really hard, really hard rebuke. But we're going to see the, the pastoral shepherding in the midst of it. Um, and I, but I want to say this, like, The difficulty isn't just mental laziness, though that is a problem, right? Like, there is some laziness. We'd rather turn on Netflix or whatever rather than reading or praying or whatever, and I'm I'm guilty of the same thing. The difficulty isn't just mental laziness, but the issue here and the root of it is ultimately spiritual resistance to the Lord, which is why it's such a serious issue. And he's saying, listen, the trajectory you're on, and he's going to unfold this in just a minute, the trajectory you're on is not a good one. It's going to lead to you leaving the faith. So we shouldn't play with sin because that's where sin takes us.
So the Hebrews uh, are demonstrating, at least in some meaningful way, that they're unwilling to work, let the gospel work itself out in their lives. And, and, and this is the case in the midst of intense suffering for the faith. And so even in the midst of suffering for Christ, we can demonstrate our own spiritual resistance to Him. While we suffer for Him, we sin against Him. And reflect a spiritual immaturity that should not be characteristic of us as those who have professed His name for years and years and years. We should be teachers. So in the midst of suffering, we should be preaching to ourselves and preaching to others the truth of the gospel. And working itself out. And letting it work itself out in our lives. Okay, so what are the what are the the elementary um, elementary or basic principles of the oracles of God? I think he outlines this in in Hebrews uh, six one and two. So let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Elementary doctrine of Christ, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ is a basic a basic doctrine. Uh, and let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. We shouldn't have to keep talking about your salvation is not by works and you should trust in Christ and Christ alone. I, don't, I shouldn't have to keep laying that foundation that you should trust God and His promises. I shouldn't have to keep telling you and teaching you about or giving you instructions about washings or the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, all of these things. Um, <clears throat> let's go on to maturity. And we will go on to maturity if God permits. So we move to verse 4, and this is where it gets really tricky for a lot of people, and, and there are differences of opinion. There are, there are Christians out there who will say, you can lose your salvation. And they'll point to this text. And there are other Christians, a lot of Reformed folks, who will say that this is, uh, helps to show a distinction between believers and New Covenant members of the mixed community of the church. Believers and their children, and so... Those new covenant members who don't exercise faith and trust the Lord, uh, but were born to believers, they'll fall away. This is also used by some Reformed folks to say, the people here only appeared to be Christians. They were really close, but they weren't quite. And so they fall away. You thought that they were Christian, but, they, but they, in falling away, they show themselves to not be Christians. Uh, I think all of those uh, options are wrong. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's the most faithful understanding of what, of what the text is saying. Uh, Timothy, you had your hand raised? I just, the statements in there, uh, instruction about washing, yeah. that just references to, to our understanding of baptism? So yeah, I think it's more so Old Covenant. Uh, purity and right. So, like he he's talking about um, whether or not those rituals or rites are continuing on for Christians, or how they found their fulfillment in Christ. More than likely, amongst Hebrew Christians, 
It's the purification codes that they're doing with the washings and stuff. And they might be tempted to say that that's, that's um, a, a command for all Christians. Yeah, six, one, and two. Yes, I mean, you are good with that because you keep repenting. That's good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that the instructions about washing is very similar to what Paul would say as it's like you observe days and these Jewish customs and all this kind of stuff. Yes, that's right. That's right. I don't necessarily know exactly what he's referring to. I don't know if it's a laying on of hands as it relates to James 5 with healing, the elders healing. <laughs> Because the laying on of hands, I mean, that's like, that can be uh, setting aside of commissioning of leaders. That could be laying on of hands in terms of prayer. It can be laying on of hands in terms of prayer for healing. There are lots of different biblical um, categories and precedents for laying on of hands. So I'm not sure exactly what particular situation he's referring to. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Right. Right. Resurrection of the dead. That's First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. Obviously, the there are some in the Corinthian church who denied that. Eternal judgment. Like, pretty straightforward. But a lot of churches don't preach hell. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that a lot of that has to do with old covenant customs and principles and laws yeah. and then how that affects them as Christians. Yeah, for me it's always been one of those things where I read this and I'm like, okay, where's the hole in my theological education? Yeah. I don't understand what he's talking about. Yeah. I buy your explanation. So I imagine that that is not something that you are stuck on. I don't think so. Um, because you already have those categories in your mind. You understand... Uh, cleanness laws, purification laws, how Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things, laying on of hands and the variety of circumstances in which that can, that can occur, resurrection of the dead, repentance of dead works, uh, and repentance and faith in Christ. So I don't think that that's your issue. And if you're like, oh man, am, is that a concern for me? Just like, oh man, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Probably not if you're thinking about it. You know, like if you're concerned about it, it's, you're probably doing what you should. Yeah, well, I think, I think for me, it's those, those, some of those phrases, I yep. feel like I have a good category that goes yep. with those phrases based on the biblical speech and everything. Yeah. Some of those phrases, though everything you just mentioned is not like foreign to me, I'm not used to talking about it. Right, right. 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 And not everything that they dealt with are you having to deal with. But implications of the same kind of warning. So like, you know, in, in understanding the gospel should inform how you treat your wife and how you should live faithfully with her in marriage and 
not be uh, unfaithful towards other women and all these kinds of things. I think all of that's the same kind of elementary doctrines, repentance, faith, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yes, because that would be going back to the law. Which is exactly what he's forbidding. In right. So right. When we're looking at this, he's not talking about a Christian doctrine. Right. Purification. Right. But, but there are a lot of Messianic Jews or Christians who go to Messianic and they, and they observe a variety of Old Covenant practices as a part of the faith. And that's spiritual immaturity. Yes. Yes, right. Uh huh. So, it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own contempt or to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So, let's talk about that. Can a Christian fall away? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Okay, why? Fall away from the faith and not be a Christian anymore after being a Christian. Yes. You say yes. Okay, why? Mm-hmm. I feel like you can lose your salvation. Okay. And the reason I feel that or think that is because we're all going to be judged. Mm-hmm. And let's just say for the sake of argument, I was saved and I was repentant for five years. And then I quit being repentant. Mm-hmm. I continued to sin. Mm-hmm. And I was unrepentant. Yep. To me, it would make sense that on the judgment day, he's going to say, I never knew you. Yeah. And to me, that's the same as losing your salvation. Okay. So you think that somebody can have the Spirit and lose it? Yes. Okay. Anybody, anybody else think that you can lose your salvation? Okay. So what must he mean then? If you don't believe that. Because it kind of seems like he's saying exactly that. Is he talking about people who look like Christians but aren't really Christians? Anybody think that way? Okay. Okay. Is that something that you would still hold to or you're like, nah? That is something that you hold to or the, ah, okay, all right. Um, do you, I mean, we're all Baptists, so I'm assuming that there aren't any of us who say our new covenant children are going to fall away from the faith, even though they enjoyed baptism and all of that kind of stuff as children, right? None of us are going to say that. Okay. I would say that, yes. So I didn't know you were Presbyterian. No, I'm I'm just joking. We're talking about child's baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay, so... He says um, that right here, a Christian 
He's giving a hypothetical situation here. I don't think he's naming anybody, obviously. Uh, and saying, if you have trusted Christ and then uh, fallen away, it's impossible for you to be a Christian again. So if it's not losing your salvation, like the vast majority of you are saying, other than Gary, Gary's saying, no, it's, that, it means what it means, and you can lose your salvation if you're a Christian. The rest of you are saying no. How do you explain this then? Enlightenment? What do you mean? They tasted of it. So you would say that they're very close, but they're not actually a Christian. Okay, all right. That's a typical reform view as well. Like thorns and thistles kind of thing? Okay, so they appeared to be, but they're not. Okay, so we got somebody who says that Christian can fall away. You can lose your salvation. Some of you are saying they appeared to be Christians, and in falling away, they demonstrate that they weren't actually Christians. That seems to be a little bit different than what they're saying, because they're saying, like, they looked like it. What, what, what would you say, John? at you. I would say it was a great answer because I think that's what the answer is. Yes, I think, I think that that's what it is. And what's the answer again? Uh, so John said that this is a warning, a real warning, a hypothetical warning, or at least a hypothetical situation, but a real warning uh, where it's talking about a Christian falling away. But it is not actually possible for that to happen. But this particular hypothetical situation serves as a warning to Christians as the means by which they are kept in the faith. And so this, this, particular, situ- this particular warning becomes the means by which Christians are kept in the faith and they don't fall away. John's saying this isn't possible. This isn't possible. What he's outlining is not possible. And that's intentional. And it's impossible for it to actually happen, but him outlining it serves as a warning. You better not fall away. And that warning serves as the means by which Christians who are struggling in the faith are kept. They look at this and they say, I better not fall away. They keep believing, yeah. If you can't fall away, why would he give you a warning? Mm-hmm. So you won't fall away. But you can't fall away. Yeah. And you don't fall away by being warned, don't fall away. Man, that is a great question. Everybody turn to Acts chapter 27. That was a great segue, Gary. Thank you. I, I promise I'll, I'll give you the money I promised you uh, after, the, after, the, after the class. 
<laughs> okay, Acts 27. Paul sailing for Rome, right? He's a prisoner. He's being sent. He, he said, I want to appear before Caesar uh, as, as, uh, and Caesar be my judge. Um, <clears throat> and so they gave him that. So he's sailing as a prisoner. And all of a sudden, this is massive storm. Uh, the ship gets caught in it. And they are very similar to Jonah's storm. Like we talked about in Jonah, um, my first sermon on, on Jonah. Like extremely violent storm. Everybody's afraid that they're going to be destroyed. Okay, in Acts 27, starting in verse one, uh, 21, this is what it says. Since they, uh, the people of the ship, had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Okay, so Paul said, listen, we're going to be okay. The ship's going to run aground, but God has told me through an angel, you're going to be okay, and everybody with you is going to be okay. Let's continue reading. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, or the battle, uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. How can Paul receive a message from God through an angel that says, don't worry, Paul, you're going to have to appear before Caesar and everybody with you is going to be safe. You're going to lose the ship, but everybody's going to be safe. That was the Lord's word to Paul. How can Paul then say, unless you stay in the ship, you're going you're to die? If he's already been told by God that they're going to live. His warning becomes the means by which the sailors stay and they live. God's already said, the sailors are going to be safe. You're going to lose the ship, but the sailors are going to be okay. Then Paul says, if you leave this boat, you will die. And because of that warning, what do they do? They cut off the life rafts. They stay in the ship. In verses 43 and 44, Paul he ordered, uh, the centurion ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So everybody lived as God had already promised. Everybody's going to live. 
But then in the midst of that storm, some are saying, we're going to abandon ship. And Paul says, if you do that, you'll die. And that warning from Paul becomes the means by which those sailors stay on the ship. And because they stay on the ship, what happens? They live. So relate that back to what we were saying. That is a great, great encouragement. In Hebrews 6, Christians... Okay, all right. Remember Paul. Paul's on the boat, right? Okay, author of Hebrews is on the boat. God's already told him new covenant people are going to be saved. They're going to endure to the end. But then these Hebrew Christians over here are looking at the old covenant because of all the suffering, and they're like, man, oh man, it'd be great if we jumped off this Jesus ship and jump back into the old covenant. And the author of Hebrews looks at them and, and says, if you do that, there's no way that you can be saved again. And what do you think happens with that warning? They stay, they stay on the ship. Let's see if you see that in Hebrews. Okay, so I think that he's describing a believer. And the, reason, the primary reason is that in, in 6.4, it talks about someone who has shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit was the gift of the new covenant. That was the primary gift, the gift of the Spirit. And in chapter 2, it talks about Jesus sharing in flesh and blood. The same language. Jesus fully participates in a full humanity. And so in using the same word here, I think the author of Hebrews is saying, this is somebody who fully participated and had the fullness of the Spirit. So I think that he's describing a Christian. But how can a Christian lose their salvation? I don't think they can. But he gives them the strong warning that this is what will happen to you if you run away from Jesus. But then what does he say in verse 9 of chapter 6? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. He says, you better not fall away from the Lord. Because it's impossible for you to be saved again. But I don't think that's going to happen to you. Because I'm so encouraged in all the many evidences of God's grace through the Spirit in your life. And I'm confident that God will keep you and cause you to endure to the end. So you must endure. Don't be sluggish. Does that make sense? No, I, st I still don't see that. I still don't see the... Uh, uh, trying to reconcile that with the judgment day. I don't... I, th I, think, I think you're describing people who thought that they were Christians and they actually weren't. Which is Matthew 7. 
I never knew you. That's right. I never knew you. How do they, why did they never, why did Jesus never know them? Because they're workers of lawlessness. You gave a very, very, very vague uh, situation that I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. What, what do you mean? I was just thinking, Get, maybe give me a more specific example. I was just wondering, um, like in that scenario, somebody mm-hmm. that backslides, mm-hmm. they have no pride, mm-hmm. but they're backsliding. Mm-hmm. What, is that, I guess, what does it mean, backsliding? Backsliding by um, sinning all the time and not caring about God. Okay, how long? Right, but how long? I mean, Christians can do some pretty terrible things. And then they decide to repent, then they're okay. But what if they never repent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it comes to be judgment day. Mm-hmm. And are you saying that they might not have ever known God? Yeah, so let's, let's take, for example, the person who prays a prayer, walks down the aisle, yada, yada, yada. I love Jesus. I repent and believe. And uh, they continue on for about five, six years, and then they go out left field, never come back to the church. Forty years. Uh, I would argue that that person was never a Christian. And the Bible gives us a category for that because he, John, the Apostle John describes those kinds of people in First John. They were, they were among us, but they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were never of us. So the Bible gives us categories for people coming in and looking like the real deal, but not actually being the real deal. That's one category. So in that situation, if it's, uh, they're living in unrepentant sin, and it's like a really long time, and people are calling them to repentance and faith, and there's just a hardening and de- uh, deception going on there, and that, that's just the pattern of their life, I would say... If you've practiced church discipline and then they never come back, they were never a Christian. But for this person who does, does like terrible stuff, uh, professes Jesus, does terrible stuff, and uh, repents, um, <clears throat> either that person was a Christian and remains a Christian, was a Christian in the beginning and remains a Christian. Uh, but maybe their church doesn't practice church discipline. And so like the Corinthians, that local church is proud. And they, don't, they do a disservice to that believer by not calling him or her to faith and repentance. That may be a situation. Maybe they do practice church discipline. They discipline him out of the church. And he realizes, holy smokes, I've been turned over to Satan. I want to repent and believe. And he's like, I want to come home. And the church accepts him. Uh, and that's a relatively quick, say, repentance after discipline. I think that can happen. I think that there are people who may be disciplined out of the church, and they realized they realized afterwards, I was never a Christian, but now I actually understand the gospel, and I want to repent and believe. And church discipline becomes the means by which that person's actually saved, even though they thought that they were a believer before. Uh, but in this particular situation, I don't think Hebrews 6 
would be the warning passage for somebody who professes Jesus, uh, loves, says they love Him, and maybe even do great things for Him, and then the pattern of their life is one of sin. I think that's Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in Your name? Preach and prophesy in Your name, and in Your name cast out demons, heal the sick, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Their life was patterned by lawlessness. That's not Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is a person who's full of the Spirit, who's tasted the Word and believes it to be true, loves Christ, and then they fall away. That particular, this particular passage is, an, is a hypothetical situation that is in fact impossible but it is a warning that serves as the way in which God keeps you enduring. Just in the same way that you could say Paul's warning to them wasn't a real warning. Well, if God said he was going to save all of them, then Paul's warning didn't mean anything. Well, are you sure? Because it seems after their warning that they cut the lifeboats away. And it was only because of his warning that they actually said, okay, we're going to believe what Paul says. And that's how they're saved. But more importantly, for whether or not a Christian can fall away, if you think, <clears throat> Gary, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. We're, this is uh, an excellent, uh, excellent opportunity uh, for looking at the Word. When we say that we can fall away from, from Christ, we're saying something about His priesthood. And we're saying something about His atoning sacrifice. So what are you saying when Christ, when you say a Christian, yeah, you can be a Christian and then you can reject the faith and fall away and be a Christian and lose your salvation. What are you saying about the Christ who represents that person? And what are you saying about the sacrifice that He gave in order that they might be saved? Either that... Or he wasn't as faithful a high priest as we seem to, we seem to think he is. You got to do things to keep it. Yeah, and so I would, I would say that the main reason why a Christian can't lose their salvation is because Jesus is your high priest. And because he represents you and he speaks for you and he intercedes for you on behalf of the Father and he's the one who gives you the Spirit which is the seal of your inheritance, Ephesians 1. And it's his body and blood that was broken for you. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But the blood of Christ does once for all. Either that wasn't powerful enough or he wasn't telling the truth. That's the primary reason why I think Christians can't be, can't be lost. So in these situations, if we have these categories in our mind, in the situations where somebody grows up in the church and they're professing faith and they may have a great life for 20, 25, 30 years, and then they just go off the rails uh, and their life is patterned by lawlessness, 
then I, I think that you would say no one should be confident that that person's a Christian. And it, and it may be that they have a Matthew 7 experience. Because if people can prophesy in Jesus' name and cast out demons in Jesus' name and perform miracles in Jesus' name, that seems to be some pretty mighty works. I've never cast out a demon. I've never healed anybody that I know of. But if there are people who profess faith in Jesus and are able to do that, and yet their life is categorized by lawlessness, and they were never Christ's, then what the standard becomes for the Christian life is not what you do for Jesus, but rather your faith and obedience working itself out every day to the end. Which is why the author of Hebrews is saying, you must endure. It's not just enough to pray a prayer, to have a moment and a decision made and one point of conversion you must continue to repent and believe. And for the Christian, if that Christian, if this is a person, the Christian runs after sin, because I'm, I'm an idiot and I've done that, okay? I've done that. I'll be super honest. I'm not going to tell you all the details. But I many times where I, I mean, even for months and, and maybe even years, uh, and the Lord disciplines those He loves. He's going to talk about that in Hebrews 12. We haven't gotten there yet, but I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. The father disciplines his children. If you look at a person's life and their life is not characterized by the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12 says he doesn't discipline illegitimate children. He only disciplines sons. And so the Lord will not let his people be lost because Christ is your king, priest, and prophet. He brings a better revelation, a better priesthood, and a better sacrifice. And He is the King who rules. And His salvation is so uh, much better than anything that any of the Old Covenant or anything before that. It makes you obedient. It changes you from the inside so that you become a new creature and a new creation. It keeps you on the ship. That's right. And the warning is a means for that. And I'm telling you, like you may say, well, that's not a true warning. Well, buddy, that's been a warning in my life. You better believe that I've thought many times, if I don't repent, like I'm not going to endure to the end. I, I got to keep enduring. And it's the means by which I'm kept. And if you want to get a really extensive argument for that, it's this book, The Race Set Before Us. Tom Schreiner, Ardell Kennedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as a metaphor, like it, it only works so far, but if you don't push it, then yeah. I mean, warnings work to save people all the time.
Isaiah. Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4 and 5. Yes. Yes. And that the people that he's describing here received all these good things. Yes. And for these good things to not bring about the growth would be false to the Lord. But if, if the, the alternative being that if we don't bear fruit, that we're worthless in his eyes because we're not walking in faith and not continuing. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, similar, similar to evangelism and, uh, and there being a lot of Christians who say, uh, unless Jesus died for everybody, then you're the preaching of evangelism and the preaching of the gospel and saying the Lord will forgive you if you repent and believe is insincere because if Christ only died for his people then you can't preach that message. Um, and so I, I would reject that. I would say, no, Jesus only died for his people, and that becomes the confidence for my evangelism. Because there are people for whom Christ died, and if I'm the means by which the gospel goes forth in preaching, God will save his people, and he will do it through means. And I'm one of those means. And so I can be, I, could, I don't have to be manipulative. I don't have to twist arms. I don't have to do different things. And, and you know, let's sing that verse for the 17th time, you know, and given plenty of time for you to come forward. I don't have to do that. I can preach powerfully. I can preach a clear gospel. I can call people to faith and repentance, believing that God will do that in his people. Just because there are people who will not be saved doesn't mean that I know that. And so I preach the gospel indiscriminately because Jesus has called me to do it. And he calls those to himself, those who he elected from eternity past. But he uses my and your sharing and preaching of the gospel to do so in the same way uh, that this warning may not be an actuality that a Christian can't lose his or her salvation. It does not mean a strong warning to not lose it isn't itself it's still a strong warning that can be used by God to keep you. Does that make sense? But primarily, it's not because of like uh, anything other than really what the author of Hebrews is arguing about Jesus being our great high priest. And we're going to see in Hebrews 7, and we'll continue uh, next week, as to why it's really just impossible. It's totally impossible when you're looking at Jesus' priestly work for anybody to fall away. Yes? So you would say, or what you are saying then, is that the primary purpose of this warning is for self-evaluation to keep you, but, or not necessarily self-evaluation, but like... It's a warning, to, it's a warning that is the means by you... Right, right, right. But, but not just self, but also warning others in the body. I mean, that's a regular warning that I give people when I'm counseling them in sin and church discipline. 
Like you have to endure to the end. And that becomes one of the means by which they're kept. That's right. You must endure to the end. And God, the God who keeps you will make it happen. But you must repent and believe. Okay. So with that strong warning, right on the, the heels of that strong warning, he says, and I believe that you're going you're gonna to endure. Keep, in, keep enduring. Keep enduring. And so we get to Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. And uh, we, he writes this, For when God made a promise, well, I'll back up to verse 12. Um, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Endure and look to those people who trusted God by faith and inherited promises. For, verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, is there a purpose on this one too? I don't have your handout. I just have my notes. Okay. Um, here's a purpose. So the author wants you to see the firm character of God's promises and the necessity of our trusting Him by faith. The author wants you to see the firm character of God's promises and the necessity of our trusting Him by faith. So do you see the uh, contrast that he has set from... Uh, 5.11 to 6.12 and 6.13 to 6.20. The author of of Hebrews is writing to an audience of spiritually immature people. And now he's contrasting that with the firmness of God's character and genuine faith that perseveres to the end. Believing God's promises. So we see... That he appeals to Abraham, and he appeals to Abraham in a particular situation. Does anybody know when, uh, what, what situation he's referencing here? Was it after Abraham defeated? It was after that, mm-hmm, the kings. It's not talking about Melchizedek, though. So, but it's after that. When is that? I mean, probably your footnotes probably have it at the bottom if you want to cheat. Yeah, Genesis 22. Anybody know what Genesis 22 is about? 
Don't turn in your Bibles. You should know this. He does reaffirm that in Genesis 22, but what's the situation? The sacrifice of Isaac. So, what does God say to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? You should know these things. I'll give you an offspring. They'll be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. I'll give you a land, right? He's already promised him an offspring, and he's already promised that nations would come from Abraham, right? Does Abraham have children during this time? No. No, he does not. He's childless. Now, he tries to make it happen with Ishmael, and that's bypassing God's purposes, right? But God hasn't yet given the, the offspring yet. Well, right before, uh, right before this particular situation, Sarah conceives and she has Isaac. So God keeps his promises. But then what does God call him to do in Genesis 22? Sacrifice. To sacrifice. So think about that. God is calling Abraham to kill the thing that God, to kill the person that God promised. And he's calling him to kill the person through whom Abraham will have offspring as numerous as the stars. So what does what does Abraham do? That he's commended for. He obeys God. He obeys God and he obeys him by trusting him, right? He trusts the Lord. Even tells Isaac when Isaac's like, hey, where's the sacrifice? Uh, the Lord will provide one. Why? Because author of Hebrews is going to say it later. Abraham so trusted God's promise, his covenant promise, that he knew that even if Abraham had to kill Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. That's the kind of trust that he has in the Lord. And the author of Hebrews is saying, and that's the kind of faith that you should have. You should have faith greater than Abraham's. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really easy to conceptualize it, right? And you're like, okay, yeah, Abraham had an offer son, and he was there with a knife, and, you know, God stopped it, and Abraham trusted him. Like, yeah, 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 slow down a little bit. Like, pump the brakes. Like, take that which is most important to you, and, and imagine that God's saying, I need you to destroy it. And God had promised you that thing. And that his great blessing would be through that thing. And he says, I need you to destroy it. I mean, wouldn't that be an opportunity for you to be like, what the hey, Lord? Didn't you promise me this? Come on, what is this all about? Is that unbelief or is that belief? 
That's unbelief. It's unbelief to disobey a clear command of the Lord. But what does Abraham do? Abraham obeys, but he obeys in light of God's promise. He's living in light of God's previous promises in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Through your offspring, all the nations are going to be blessed. You're going to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the heaven. And it's not going to be through Ishmael. He knows it's going to be through Isaac. I mean, Ishmael is going to be blessed just because he's, he's connected to Abraham. But Isaac is the one through whom the promises will come. And Abraham trusts him. And, and what does the Lord say? Genesis 22 Verse 17, the Lord stops him, Abraham, 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 don't lay your hand on the boy. I know that you fear me, seeing that you haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. And then he lifts his eyes, sees the ram, Abraham uh, sacrifices the ram, the first instance maybe of a, a substitutionary sacrifice here, that we see this later picked up in the Levitical priesthood. In system, Abraham called that name of the place the Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So <clears throat> when you go to court and you have to testify, they, at least traditionally, they've had you put your hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And you're giving an oath, an oath upon the Bible and an oath to God, so help me God. I'm, I'm going to tell the truth. So God becomes the guarantor, at least the executor of vengeance, if you are going to lie, right? And so God, uh, we do that by appealing to something greater than us, right? I swear on myself. Okay, well, that doesn't mean anything. Just give me your word. <laughs> you know? Like, that's no better than you telling me your word, you know? Like, uh, I need something more than that. Uh, for God, there is no one greater, and there is nothing greater than Him, but in Genesis 22, he says, what's the exact wording again? Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring. Uh, the Lord swears by himself. So what is the difference between us and God in terms of telling lies? God can't lie. Is that, we, we talk about God being able to do everything, but he can't lie. Does that mean that like God's not all powerful? Because we think that the ability to lie is somehow good. When in fact it's imperfection, right? So God can't lie. That's right. That's right. And his, God's character and his word are, are what? Always true. So we've got these like 
Well, God's very character by His nature, he's, He always speaks the truth. When He speaks, life happens. He creates the world. He gives new life through His Word uh, in Christ. He can't lie. But then we see in Genesis 22, and this becomes important for Christ's priesthood, because we see the same thing in Psalm 110. God swears... Swears by himself. So he tells Abraham, listen, not only have I given you a promise and I can't lie, but I'm going to swear by myself because there's nothing greater by which I can swear that you're going to get everything I promised you. And what does it say? Abraham believed. And what was that promise that he swore by? He swore by himself, I will give you an offspring. It was Christ. It was Christ. The promises. The promise of an offspring was the promise of Christ. He swore by himself that he would do everything that he said he would do in light of giving his own son. So, what does the apostle, or what does the author of Hebrews write uh, for us in light of these things? If God can't lie, and if God's character and His word and His promises are always true, and if God has sworn by Himself because there's nothing greater by which He might swear, if He's done those things in promising to us wonderful things in light of Christ, We who flee to him for refuge should have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We, have, we haven't seen everything that God has promised us, right? Like, I haven't seen the new creation. I haven't seen the resurrection of the dead. I haven't seen all of these future promises that I know are mine in Christ. But what the Lord, what God is saying. Uh, through the author of Hebrews, is that if he's made promises, and if he can't lie, and by two unchangeable things, namely his promises and him swearing by himself, uh, he makes promises to me, uh, then I should hope in them. Because there's no way that he's going to return uh, false, or not. he's going to be untrue to his promises to me in Christ. So what, what is this? We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we might look at that and say, well, God never promised anything to me specifically like he did to Abraham with a swearing an oath. Well, actually he did. One, because in swearing to Abraham by an oath, the offspring, you get that offspring. That, promises, that promise becomes true because you're an offspring of Abraham and Christ. But also in Psalm 110. What does Psalm 110 say? The Lord, verse, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God can't lie. He will not lie. God's promise and His character and His word are always true. God swears by Himself because there are no greater that He will do what is true and say what is true. And He has said, 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so why is that important for us? Because since God has sworn by Himself and His promises are always true that Jesus is a priest forever, and if Jesus is my high priest, then I always have a priest who will allow me to go to God. So I can always enter into the inner place with confidence. And that's why it's so important that Christians can't fall away. Not primarily because of the warning, but because Jesus is always my priest. He's a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Not like the Levites. After the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. So that my hope, your hope in Christ is that you can enter into the inner place, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of Christ's priestly work. And so he's already commanded you to be, com- be confident in your prayers, pray confidently, approach confidently the throne room of grace in prayer, but now he's actually referring more to the presence of God itself, not just prayer. You can enjoy the presence of God, and in fact, you must enjoy the presence of God confidently. Why? Because you have, a priest for, you have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And it's not, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to make myself a priest. He was appointed a priest. And he was appointed a priest by the fact that God can't lie. His promises, word, and character are always true. And God has sworn by himself, you are a priest forever, son, after the order of Melchizedek. So, as you think about your life and, and you see clearly like that you're a huge screw-up, because you should see that uh, more often than we probably, we probably do, uh, here's the confidence. Uh, you can enter confidently in prayer and in the presence of the Lord because you have a great high priest in Jesus who is a priest forever. And He allows you to enter the throne room of grace and to enjoy the fellowship of God, that which He enjoys. Uh, And you're going to enjoy it forever because Christ Christ is going to be your priest forever. Because the Lord has sworn and His promises are always true and He can't lie. Does that make sense? Now, this is important for His argument in in Hebrews 7, but we're going to have to uh, stop there. Any any questions? He'll build on this in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 is um, amazing. Any questions before we close it up? Yeah. Yeah, we'll do Hebrews 7. I didn't, I didn't think that we would do any more than Hebrews 6, and, but I made the study guide as if we might. It was like we used to sing in the 60s. That's heavy, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Any questions before I pray? Okay. All right, well, let me pray, and y'all can get out of here.